Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... The crunch on our hospital system is not a hypothetical. It is not in the future. It is now. It is here. The governor cautions residents, vetoes legislation, and defends monuments. Then the mayor of Jackson describes the measures the capital city is taking to fight the trend of rising COVID cases. Plus, in today's book club, the history of an iconic blues lounge chronicled through the photos in the book Poe Monkeys. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's current hospitalization rate is now the third highest in the country, trailing only Arizona and Texas. The state has seen cases of COVID spike in the last two weeks, causing hospitalizations to reach their highest levels since the first case was reported March 11th. Governor Tate Reeves says the strain on the hospital system is no longer a hypothetical. The fact is that the crunch on our hospital system is not a hypothetical. It is not in the future. It is now. It is here. The overwhelming of our system, our health care system, is not a one-day event. It is a slow-moving disaster that looks like nurses without sleep, doctors who cannot take care of you to the best of their ability because they are stretched too thin, and ambulances that have to turn around because the hospital to which they are taking you cannot admit you because they do not have room for you. Because of that, we have worked with Dr. Dobbs and his team and ordered elective procedures to stop in several counties. We had orders in place that required hospitals to reserve 25% of their bed space for possible COVID-19 patients. Many hospitals in our state did not follow those rules. Now, this is what we've had to do. County-specific orders are most likely imminent. Additional restrictions on social distancing and potentially mask mandates. We've done it before. We've done it successfully before. And it is now likely time to do it again. Those orders will be finalized in the near future, and they will be out very, very soon. Reeves began easing restrictions in May with hopes to reopen the state fully on July 1st. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the high levels of transmission are not unexpected. We've been on a pretty remarkable trajectory over the past couple of weeks. I would hope that no one would find this even a remote surprise given our previous conversations. It's, It's something that we've been anticipating because nothing's really happened that would diminish the, the spread of disease in Mississippi um, regarding um, what we've seen with community transmission, 
people doing social events, crowding, etc., it's inevitable. As you go about your daily life, imagine that every person you, can, you encounter has coronavirus because, in fact, they could. We know that much of the transmission happens from people who are asymptomatic, and we know that around 41% of super spreaders are, in fact, asymptomatic, no symptoms at the time that they're spreading it. So you have to assume that you're at risk at every single moment. And then the, how this culminates into stress on the healthcare system is not even remotely surprising either. We've been monitoring very closely hospital capacity, especially ICU capacity, and within the Jackson area and other places, we've seen zero ICU beds day after day after day in numerous health, in numerous hospitals. And so we did have to take this action, uh, restricting elective surgeries that um, require hospitalization overnight, such that we can make more bed avail- bedroom avail- bed space available for people with serious illness or with coronavirus. The state currently has 32,888 cases of COVID-19 with 1,188 related deaths. Reeves says the way to buck the current trend of rising cases is to get buy-in from residents and that it starts with leaders. We've got to spend even more time as leaders, uh, those of us who have a microphone, expressing the importance of wearing a mask. The importance of not only wearing a mask, by the way, because wearing a mask is a good thing, but it is um, one of many things that need to be done. It's the little things that need to happen. For instance, on restaurants, we currently have a capacity limit on restaurants. Many of them are adhering to it, and I appreciate what they're doing. Some are not. If you are not adhering to the capacity limits at your restaurant, then we need you to start adhering to it. Because if you don't, you then are part of the problem, not part of the solution. We need everyone to adhere to the guidelines that are in place. We need every individual not only to wear a mask when they're in public, but to stay socially distanced. Let's not go to uh, parties at the river and hang out with 30 or 40 or 3,000 people because it is very likely that you are adding to the spread if that is something that you're doing right now. During his most high-profile public outing last month, Reeves attended a large funeral in Simpson County where he did not wear a mask. This despite recommendations from health officials that large gatherings like funerals be avoided and that masks be worn when social distancing was not possible. Members of the legislature were also inconsistent in adhering to public health recommendations. During a widely viewed session on June 28th to pass the recent flag bill, leaders of both chambers were seen without masks. This week, it has been revealed multiple members of the legislature, including Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman and House Speaker Philip Gunn, have contracted the virus, prompting concerns of an outbreak. Dobbs says the health department has tested some members. First, how many have been tested? I only have information on the ones that we've done at the Department of Health. And um, this week, we've tested, you know, we did a testing event there about a month ago, and we tested about 170, something like that. But We've tested about 290 this go-round. Um, uh, and then, I, as I mentioned, you know, we have 36 cases, 26 among legislators that we're aware of. There's several more that we're trying to track down, so it, that number will so, almost certainly grow. 
Also among those testing positive is Representative Earl Banks, a Democrat from Jackson. In a Facebook post, Banks said there are as many as 50 members of the House with the virus. He says he spent two and a half days next to his desk mate who was tested on June 26th but did not quarantine while awaiting results. Banks says on July 1st, the lawmaker called and said the test came back positive. The legislature is on hold until a scheduled return in the fall. Meanwhile, Governor Reeves has been considering legislation passed over the last week. Via Facebook Wednesday night, he announced he would be vetoing a number of bills, including an education bill that eliminated a school incentive program. He addressed the bill yesterday during a press conference. I'm very concerned, as I have pointed out over the last 24 hours, uh, with a particular um, budget item that I think is critically important, and that is the, the school recognition program. Uh, if the bill becomes law, as it is currently written, there will be 23,157 teachers that are entitled to more money who will get a pay cut this year. We've got to fix this, and I think that there is general consensus uh, amongst most that there is a desire to make sure that the school recognition program is funded at the level that it is supposed to be funded at. Other vetoed bills include two prison reform bills. Reeves also took aim at municipalities and counties that have voted to remove Confederate or otherwise controversial icons as a result of the re-energized conversation on systematic racism. He says state laws regarding monuments may have to be strengthened. Monuments are erected to recognize our past. I do not believe that cities or counties should be taking down monuments. And in fact, to those who are doing it, I just want to remind everyone that there is a state law which places guidelines on what you can and cannot do when you take down monuments. And perhaps we need to strengthen our state law. Um, But those who around this country are tearing down monuments to abolitionists. They're tearing down monuments to our founding fathers. Um, And I just don't think that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, I don't think it's going to help make us uh, a better place. And in many instances, the very people who are tearing them down are not tearing it down because they hate the individual. Because in many instances, they don't even know who the individual is whose monument they're tearing down. In many instances, they hate the fiber of America. They hate what we stand for, which is freedom and opportunity and capitalism. There have been no reports of monuments being torn down or destroyed in Mississippi since protests began in early June against systemic racism. Municipalities and counties have voted through their local councils to remove statues glorifying the Confederacy from areas of prominence like courthouses and town squares. In Jackson, the city council voted to relocate a bronze statue of President Andrew Jackson. In addition to owning enslaved people, Jackson also oversaw the forced migration of Native Americans in which many died. Shokwe Antar Lumumba is the mayor of Jackson. While we cannot erase history, as people have said, uh, nor do we are we attempting to erase history, we can make certain that that those individuals that we immortalize as as being uh, revered uh, reflect the spirit and culture of what our city looks like today. 
Coming up, more from a measure the capital city is taking to fight the trend of rising COVID cases. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Hines County, home of the capital city, has been the hardest hit county in the state during the coronavirus pandemic. This has prompted the mayor of Jackson to take strong action that is often more restrictive than statewide orders. Shokwe Antarlamumba joins us to discuss the ordinances and safety measures he has enacted to keep residents of the state's largest metro area safe. It's a mandatory facial covering ordinance, recognizing that not every person uh, has access to a mask they might need. Uh, While the city has endeavored to uh, distribute masks, uh, we still want to provide some level of flexibility for those that may not have access to those. But in terms of uh, in in terms of participation, in terms of people willingly doing so. Uh, By and large, that is happening. Uh, And, you know, I have not received the data as of yet to see how many citations we've had to issue. Uh, It's important that we have cooperation from our business community, uh, because if people are denied service, uh, then it becomes it becomes routine. Uh, There used to be a time where uh, a good number of people did not wear seatbelts. Uh, until the auto industry, uh, until it became custom that you put one on, sometimes having the annoying beep of your car uh, to encourage you. And so we have to take advantage of any and every uh, resource and partnership that we can so that we can have a safer safe, uh, safer community. Mayor Lumumba, are you getting any pushback about this mandate? Uh, yeah, I mean, there. anytime you're regulating people, uh, you will have... Uh, some level of pushback. Uh, what we find is that it is by far the minority uh, that that you know that pushback comes from, and you know there's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of partisan um, positioning on this issue, uh, and I think that that's that's you know that's tragic because it's simply about health. You know I don't care whether whether you know you like my political ideology or not. I just want you to be safe to live to, to, to disagree with me another day. Uh, one thing is certain that if we're all wearing masks, then we greatly reduce the chance of passing the virus, uh, which is mainly uh, distributed through, you know, aerosol droplets uh, to one another, then we can reduce that. And, and, you know, I think we'd also need to make certain that we're framing the question more, uh, ju- not not just in terms of the negatives, but the positives that we want to see. We all want to see, you know, football season when it comes around. We all want our children to be able to go to school. Uh, you know, we want uh, some semblance of a normal world again. And so I think it's important that we take the necessary precautions. 
As of last count, Hines County has just under 2,600 cases of coronavirus with 41 deaths, which is actually actually less than a number of other counties. But that's mostly due to uh, a lesser count in long-term care facilities. Do you have any count for Jackson itself? We have not received specific data for Jackson itself. Uh, we have attempted through our own symptom collector to extrapolate data. Uh, and we've attempted to have a data sharing agreement with uh, the Department of Health. Uh, let me share this. Dr. Dobbs has been absolutely, uh, you know, uh, first class as it pertains to helping the city of Jackson with our needs. Uh, there has been some pushback from the attorney general's office um, with allowing that agreement to, to go in place. And we've had several different efforts and, and different versions of an agreement to try to get this moving. And quite simply, one, uh, the very purpose of a, of a Department of Health is to, is to gather data um, so that we can make decisions which are in the interest of the, you know, the, the population but also, uh, by not having this information, it is tying the hands of the city to coordinate a, uh, a specific response to where we see hotspots. Let me jump in if for you, a second. What, what is the attorney general's objection for the health department to provide more information? That, that, has, that has been unclear. Uh, there have been, you know, uh, there's been a stated support of it from the health department, and then there was a, a somewhat of a retreat from that position. And then, you know, we came back to they would agree to it. And the document, uh, various documents have sat before the attorney general's office for quite some time. And um, we don't have the luxury of time. And so, you know, we see it as being a part of the greater good of the greater Jackson area and the state at, at large. Do you see Jackson Public Schools being able to open next month? And do you have any influence or power in that happening? Uh, I like to think that, that I have a, uh, a, a credible voice to the, to the, to the, the question or, or a voice that, that they listen to. Um, but but I, I don't look at it as, as being, you know, the person who, who makes the decision. Ultimately, we have some very capable uh, decision makers in place, uh, not only the superintendent who's done a wonderful job and the school board that we are very proud of. Uh, and it is my understanding right now that they are looking at uh, different iterations of what that looks like. Um, I, I don't think that we'll see the school, the schools open in the traditional way that we've become accustomed to. I think they're talking about a combination of online learning along with a rotating uh, schedule, uh, which has a reduced class size. Uh, one of the challenges that we have to recognize is not every student has availability or have, has access to a computer or the Internet. And so we have to make certain that we accommodate their needs uh, and, and that there is no deficit in, in their um, there are no deficits in, in what they are exposed to. Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba, 
Thank you very much for making time for us this morning. Thank you. Coming up in today's book club, the history of an iconic blues lounge chronicled through photos in the book Poe Monkeys. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPBOnline.org is your destination for everything Mississippi public broadcasting. You can catch up on past shows from Think Radio, listen live anytime, or become a sustaining member, all from one place. So what are you waiting for? Get connected now at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Along a dirt road surrounded by farmland in the Mississippi Delta is a place that was a mecca for blues fans. This little shack-like lounge welcomed music lovers for more than 50 years before closing in 2016. In the book Paul Monkeys, Portrait of a Duke Joint, photographer Will Jacks shares more than 70 black and white photos that illustrate why Paul Monkeys was a mandatory stop on a blues pilgrimage. Paul Monkeys is was a juke joint outside of Marigold, Mississippi. It was run by Willie Seabury. It was started sometime in the early 60s. Even Willie couldn't tell you an exact date of when it started. Uh, Like most juke joints, it was kind of born out of a desire to create a space where the farm laborers could gather and let off some steam. And it just progressed that way all the way up until Willie's death in 2016. Over the years, particularly around 98, 99, 2000, Monkeys became a very key component of the state of Mississippi's marketing of the blues as an economic base, and it succeeded in doing so. I went on Google Maps to find the building, and there's this shack-like building in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere. And you said farmhands would go, which makes Mm -hmm. sense because it's surrounded by farmland. What was the transference between farmhands to a very wide audience, black and white and young and old? Right. Well, I think there were a couple of things. It starts with Willie Seabury. Willie was just magnetic, and people enjoyed being around him. And he also created a space that was comfortable for all walks of of people. And that was true even in the 60s and 70s before all of this tourism stuff even even began. So there was always a smattering of a diverse clientele that would come hang out at Willie's. And then in the late 90s, you had this perfect mix of his personality, of the locals that continued to be patrons of this space from its beginning. They were there in the end as well, which is really unique as we began to have more and more, particularly European tourists come. You see a lot of spaces in the Delta that are filled with tourists and not with locals. It's usually one or the other. Not always, but usually. And Poe Monkeys was never like that. It was always grounded with the locals who followed Willie's lead of being welcoming and sharing their stories with any guests that may show up from other places. One of my favorite photos, which is a little strange maybe, are all of these outlets with that are hanging with extension mm-hmm. cords and plugs. And you think this is a fire hazard waiting to happen. 
Sure. But it shows, I don't know, how much activity was going on, as evidenced by mm-hmm. all the things that were plugged into these several power strips. And that'll never happen again, right? That, like, that's one of the reasons when people, when I hear people comment, of, oh, it needs to reopen. And I'm not sure what needs to happen out there. But one of the things I am certain of is that the only reason you were able to have an electrical system like that was because Willie Seabury opened this club in the early 60s when there were few regulations and guidelines when there and even if there were the property of uh juke joints of black farm laborers was not something that was paid as much attention to and that carried forward as long as willie was involved and some of those things will never happen again in that way so there are all these wonderful things about the space that are born out of these really tragic things. I hope that that's part of what people are able to get as they really examine the book is that, wow, this will never exist again. Will Jacks is the photographer. The book is called Poe Monkey's Portrait of a Juke Joint. Will is a program manager for the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area. Will, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.